giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we're back with you here on the 14th of April, 2021, Wednesday. Also, in addition to, well, what you're listening to here right now on The Punch-Out, our patrons-only edition of The Punch-Out, out today. Go to patreon.com slash breakthrough news. You can get access to that, talking all about Latin America this week. Here today on The Punch-Out, here, we are going to be talking about the right-wing money machine rolling on. We're going to be talking about how union busting costs you thousands of dollars in wages, even if you're not at a union. But before we get to either of those two important stories, we're going to talk about the high-cost colonial occupation in Afghanistan. Well, with an end seemingly in sight to the war and occupation in Afghanistan, many officials in the United States and other NATO countries will undoubtedly look to claim credit for some some sort of victory. No victory at all. And I have to say that that credit should be absolutely denied to them. The 20-year war has been an abject failure, certainly on any reasonable moral basis, but even on its own terms. The U.S. and NATO have not, in fact, eliminated quote-unquote international terrorism, as they claim. They've delivered a serious blow to al-Qaeda, no doubt. But irony of all ironies here, ISIS, a group that only exists because of the U.S. occupation and war in Iraq, is, of course, now present in Afghanistan. They also, the U.S. and NATO, have not defeated the Taliban. In fact, they're making a deal with them. Taliban controls more territory now than any time since 2001. At one point, the U.S. said that they're going to defeat the drug trade, take out opium and heroin. Well, Afghanistan has accounted for 84% of global opium production in the past five years. To add insult to injury on that one, the U.S.-backed government just straight up dissolved its own counter-narcotics ministry in 2019. Apparently, they didn't even offer the U.S. a reason when they did it. But I mean, 84% of the global opium production in the past five years, five years, I don't think they really needed to give a reason. It's clear what they were doing. The vaunted work around women, of, women and girls, that is, is essentially just a joke. I mean, if the measuring stick is the Taliban in the 90s, undoubtedly better. But the issue is still deeply precarious rights for women and not even holding a candle to the rights for women that existed in the communist-led governments of the 1980s in Afghanistan, destabilized course, by the United States. So really, just on its own terms, the U.S. carried out a 20-year war and occupation that failed, again, on its own terms, and at an extremely high cost. At least 31,000 Afghan civilians have been killed. There are estimates of around 360,000 civilian deaths due to indirect causes from the war as well. And those numbers are from studies that almost certainly undercount. Thousands of U.S. troops were killed and tens of thousands wounded, and of course, tens of thousands killed and wounded fighting on the Afghan side as well. 54.4% of the population is living below the poverty line. The majority of Afghan workers earn less than $3.10 a day. And when I say majority, I mean 98.2%. More than two-thirds of the country's population lacks clean drinking water. The literacy rate, 38.2%. Between 2013 
In 2018, food insecurity increased, going up to 44.6%. And 50% of Afghan children are stunted. So any idea that the U.S. was supporting some sort of state-building project, also a joke. Which really just makes the whole thing even more galling since huge amounts of money have in fact been spent allegedly to address those terrible social indicators. In fact, since fiscal year 2002, $143 billion was appropriated specifically by Congress for Afghan reconstruction. Just to put that in perspective, it would cost $125 billion to fix all the bridges in America. So while America's bridges were crumbling, in 2013, by the way, one in nine bridges could collapse at any time. So while America's bridges were crumbling, Congress has had more will to fund the war in Afghanistan then fix the bridges in America. Literally could have erased the entire funding gap for bridge repair, but instead sent it to Afghanistan. And what even happened with that $143 billion when 50% of the children in the country are stunted? Well, you might be able to guess it means that the money was not well spent, much of it stolen and embezzled. In fact, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan has noted that they, quote, have documented hundreds of cases of waste, fraud, and abuse of U.S. funds including one in 2019, where a $775 million contract to provide electricity in one province was doled out. The project, however, never even collected records on what it did. In fact, it wasn't even required to collect records. So despite spending $775 million, they could not, in fact, explain if anything happened with that money. There was also $85 million given to Marriott to build two hotels that sat empty for years. Not just empty, abandoned. They were right across the street from the U.S. Embassy. Hmm. Further, the Special Inspector General also found that more than 91% of USAID's implementing partners formally quarter, formal quarterly, biannual, annual, and final project performance reports lacked information required by USAID's award agreements that were there. So basically, they just didn't say what they did with the money they were given. It's just an all-around total failure at the cost of tens of thousands of lives, hundreds of thousands of lives, really, and obviously innumerable trillions of dollars. The NATO military command in the countries that are all a part of this deserve no credit at all, only shame for what they perpetuated. <laughs> Only 11.6% of workers were covered by a union collective bargaining agreement in 2019. But it's important to note, even though many people are not in unions, the decline in unionization since 1979 has had a profound effect on everyone's wages. Studies have shown that not only do union workers usually make more than similarly skilled non-union workers, but also that where unions are strong, non-union workers' wages are also higher, and that stronger unions the more stronger unions are, I should say, the more strong unions are, the more wage inequality uh, is less of an effect on workers. So it narrows the range of income inequality when you have strong unions. A new study from the Economic Policy Institute has put some hard numbers to the general effect here of the decline of unionization on everyone's wages. They note that, quote, for the quote-unquote typical or median worker, declining unionization translates to a loss of $1.56 per hour worked the equivalent of $3,250 for a full-time, full-year worker. $3,250 for a full-time, full-year worker. So $3,200 every year, less than you should be making 
because of the decline in unionization in this country. The erosion of collective bargaining has lowered the median hourly wage by 7.9% from 1979 to 2017. Deunionization widened the gap between the 90th percentile of workers and the 50th percentile. That's basically between the very top and the middle by 7.7 points, also from 1979 to 2017. Now, in that time, the gap between the 90th percentile, very top, and the 50th percentile, the middle, has widened by 23 points overall. That means that about a third of the increase in the gap in wages between the top and the middle of the income scale, 33% about, is due to the decline of unions. Anti-union propaganda is all about how unions are corrupt, how they just are out for the top officials to make money, how they're going to take money from you in dues. They said at Amazon, well, they're going to take $500 from you in dues. Well, when you lay out the facts, the decline in unions is costing you $3,200 a year at least. So whatever else is said about unions, there is no doubt if you have one or if there are a lot of them around you, your wages are going to be better. Well, many people wondered if the attempt by Republicans to challenge the results of the election, completely fraudulent, the uh, presidential election, I should say, uh, including, of course, aiding and abetting a mob that overran the Capitol, that somehow all of that would cost them some support from within the ruling class. That's what many people thought could happen, what they wondered would happen. And certainly it has cost them some rhetorical support for sure, especially from corporations themselves. And there have been a flurry of stories about corporate PACs declining to give to various Republican uh, election objectors. Well, Republicans just had a record fundraising first quarter. And while, yes, small dollar donations played a role, the names of the super rich are all throughout the donor records. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy out of California reported a $27 million first quarter haul. The Minority Whip Steve Scalise from Louisiana, who once said he was like David Duke, but without the baggage, he pulled in $7 million. Ted Cruz, well, we all know Ted Cruz of Cancun fame. He brought in $5.3 million and Josh Hawley, $3 million. The National Republican Campaign Committee itself was crowing. They put out a press release talking about their banner $33.7 million haul. And in March, they raised the most money they've ever raised in one month. Now, all the filings are not fully released yet, so we don't have full insight into where this cash tsunami is coming from. But I did took a look at some of the partial records available for the National Republican Campaign Committee, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, and despite what you may have heard in the news, The rich and powerful are all over it. The rich and powerful are all over it. John Cotton, scion of the billionaire founder of massive healthcare company Meridian, and now an executive at the same company, handed over $213,000 to the National Republican Senatorial Committee as of February 28th. Joining him on the list was Patrick G. Ryan, an insurance industry billionaire, and his wife. They chipped in for $315,000. The National Republican Campaign Committee was blessed with multiple six-figure donations from Barbara Grimm Marshall, owner of Grimway Farms, which according to them is the, quote, world's largest grower, packer, and shipper of fresh, processed, and frozen carrots. Hmm. She's joined in forking cash over to the NRCC coffers by Jeffrey Palmer, also a billionaire. He also is known by the sobriquet, if you will, LA's worst developer. 
Yes, that's right. He's known as the worst developer in all of Los Angeles. Ross Perot Jr., also a billionaire, also makes a showing on the list. So if you thought trying to steal an election based on fake claims of fraud rooted in racist lies, combined with a mob assault on the Capitol would drive away the rich and powerful from the Republicans, well, you would be wrong. Believe it or not, many of the wealthiest Americans are doubling down on those exact sort of far-right politics. And that is going to do it for us here today on The Punch Out. And of course, go to patreon.com slash breakthrough news and you can get our patrons only punch out about Latin America this week, also out today. But as always, we'll be back with you tomorrow, 5 p.m. Eastern here on Breakthrough News. Yeah, yeah, yeah.